This is Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care, where we have insightful conversations about parenting for bio, foster, adoptive, or blended families to better understand the experiences we all face as families. Hello, everyone. We have a very special edition of our podcast this month. It is a recap from Utah Foster Care's extraordinary annual symposium organized by my dear co-host, Liz Rivera. This year, we welcome Dr. George Thompson, who focused on how trauma affects the brain and how a child's unconscious sense of safety or danger impacts their emotions and behaviors. But first, let's begin with Utah Foster Care CEO, Mike Hamblin presenting the Fostering Community Award to Rachel Garrett. We're so grateful to have everyone here. I am honored to present our second annual Fostering Community Award, and this year's recipient is Rachel Garrett. So the simple fact that Rachel's a foster parent, like many of you in the room and online, would definitely qualify her and all of you, quite frankly, for recognition. But today we're recognizing Rachel for having a vision to see a need and then take action to make sure that need is met. As a foster parent of teens, Rachel recognized the additional supports that this population needs. She brought her vision into reality through the creation of a new organization called Common Thread. Common Thread's mission is to bring together youth ages 12 to 19 who have the common thread in their lives of having been impacted by foster care, childhood trauma or abuse, or other difficult hardship. Rachel works with the community to organize free events that offer them a safe, inclusive, trauma-informed space to make positive memories, feel supported, connect with each other, and heal. I've had the opportunity to attend all these activities and see firsthand the power of bringing kids together. I've also seen Rachel's passion, as well as the passion of those that assist in this as she interacts with the youth and connects with them personally. But you don't have to be there to see it. All it takes is a glimpse of their Instagram account, and you can see for yourself the immediate positive effect on the teens and the community that cares about them. Rachel's work is not only wonderful for what it does for the teens, but also for the community she's brought together to know and love these kids. Thank you, Rachel. We can't wait to see what's next. Thank you again. We'll turn this back to Liz. If you don't follow Common Thread on Instagram, just look up Common Thread Utah and you'll find it. They are really great at announcing what's coming as well as events that they've had. And this is for any youth affected by foster care. And that includes children that you had before you did foster care, kids you've adopted years ago. Many teens in that age range are welcome to be a part of this. So I have the pleasure now of introducing our principal speaker today, Dr. George S. Thompson, MD, is a child psychiatrist devoted to assisting families and healthcare organizations to build emotionally safe, curious, collaborative, and coherent cultures that transform trauma into wisdom. He, along with co-author Marilyn Sanders, is the author of the recent book, Polyvagal Theory in the Developing Child, Systems of Care for Strengthening Kids, Families, and Communities. George serves on the advisory board of the Polyvagal Institute and is a treasurer of the board of directors of the Dyadic Developmental Psychotherapy Institute. He and his team are creating a model youth psychiatric residential program, the Thompson Centers for Heroic Change. Today I'm going to talk about a brain with a mind of its own, polyvagal theory, and specifically how it applies to foster care. I'm very happy to be here with foster parents. It takes a lot of courage to take a child that has struggled in other places or that has had difficult experiences and say, I'm going to be the parent to this child. It's a very amazing thing to do that. 
I found this quote on the Utah foster care website. Trauma from their past influences the behavior of children in foster care, and they've learned habits that have helped keep them safe. And these habits can negatively impact how they relate to the world around them. And that's really, I think, one of the things that I've been most interested in is how do the habits of kids that are designed to keep them safe, that's what they're attempting to do, actually then cause problems for themselves and other people. So as a foster family, you can offer a safe home and a chance to replace old habits with new ones, which is a very beautiful thing to aspire to. And Utah Foster Care offers training to help you understand the trauma that these kids have experienced and to effectively care for them. And so that's what we're doing here today. I'll focus a lot on traumatized kids, but what I'll talk about actually applies to all humans because we all have a nervous system. Anybody here ever gotten yelled at by a foster kid? When I first met Jeremy, he was just before his sixth birthday. It was a very disturbing experience. He told me, sit down, asshole. And I felt like I had been punched in the stomach by this kid. This is a kid that had been the victim of domestic violence, so had a lot of trauma in his history. Dad had left a number of years earlier. I think he was repeating the trauma that he had experienced, and that's one of those habits that's designed to keep him safe. He's going to put me in my place, make sure that I know that he can control me, and that way he can stay safe, but it doesn't do a lot for his relationships. And when families are working with a kid like Jeremy in foster care, it, it can be a very tough experience, right? You can be yelled at, you can be frightened in different ways, you can be upset by things that they say. You've opened your heart, you've opened your home, and here is somebody that's yelling at you, calling you names. And I think that traumatized kids often have special antenna to know just that thing that will get to you. They'll find that, and sometimes they can do it within just a few seconds. That was probably within 30 seconds of meeting Jeremy. He really somehow got to a place where it had an impact on me. I thought I would talk about polyvagal theory first from the standpoint of the parent, the foster parent, because I have a lot of compassion for the work that you're doing as foster parents. I think one of the things that's hardest is that some of the things that happen with the kid can make you feel like you're not doing a good enough job, or it can make you feel like you are angry or upset or afraid. It can make you feel like giving up. And that's actually, I think, one of the hardest parts about working with kids with trauma is that you have to be helpful even though they're making you feel miserable. And that's quite a challenge often. How do you keep going? And so one of the ways that has been helpful for me and people that I work with is to understand some about what's going on with that child. What is it that's happening in their brain, in their mind, in their heart that is leading them to be this way? If I can understand that, then it opens a little bit of a crack for me to have some compassion for what they might be going through. And so this boy, Jeremy, obviously is having an impact on his mother's nervous system. And his mother's nervous system feels the threat. I worked with this family for a number of years and the mom herself had been a foster kid. She had experienced sexual abuse and domestic violence herself, had moved out of the home when she was 12 into foster care and got emancipated when she was about 16. But during the first couple of years of the work with the family, she would often dissociate when the boy would get like this. It took a lot for her to stay connected. Her son had the same name as the father. 
they were senior and junior. He looked the same, they had a similar appearance. And also the boy would say things that would really mimic what the dad was saying. And this had such an impact on her nervous system. But over time, she learned to stay present more and more and then could do some different things to be helpful to her son. So under threat, our nervous systems have predictable responses. And we'll talk about how the polyvagal theory explains these responses of our nervous system. If we understand those responses in ourselves and in the children we're working with or other people in our lives, then that gives us the chance to respond differently. Not everybody probably in your life has the same calling to work with a foster kid. So when kids are saying those things, like Jeremy was saying, it may be that your parents don't understand and they say, why are you doing this? Or your brothers and sisters say, don't come around at holidays anymore because the kid that you're working with has too many difficulties. And this understanding can help you to understand what their responses are, and maybe at some point then to help them understand what it is that you're dealing with and the child is dealing with. So let's talk some about the polyvagal theory. And the polyvagal theory is really a theory that addresses the autonomic nervous system. Autonomic is a fancy word for automatic, and it's self-governing. It has its own way of detecting information from the environment and making decisions that doesn't go through the brain at all. So it's a regulation system, it regulates a number of different things, but it's outside of our conscious awareness. For example, one of the things that the autonomic nervous system regulates is our rate that our heart beats. None of us are sitting here thinking, okay, I need my heart to beat at 72 beats a minute right now. It's just doing it. It's outside of conscious awareness. It's monitoring some various things and it's making decisions, not decisions like a thought decision, but it's making adjustments based on how the brain is functioning. It's a very amazing process. Traditionally, we've been taught that there's two branches to the autonomic nervous system, parasympathetic and sympathetic. When I was in medical school, back in the 20th century, we were taught that the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic were in a dynamic tension with each other. So one was either having more control or the other one is having more control. But the polyvagal theory has a new twist on that. The blue side is the parasympathetic and the red side is the sympathetic nervous system. Each organ has some input from each of these and they often have opposite effects. So the sympathetic nervous system is responsible for the fight or flight response. And the fight or flight response is designed to change us physiologically so that we're prepared to hit, run away as fast as we can so that we can survive. It's a survival mechanism. And so the effect on the eye, if you're having an increase in the sympathetic nervous system output, it dilates the pupil. And the idea is that more light can get into the back of the eye and you can see things better. You can respond to a threat because you can pay attention to it better. The next part is the salivary glands. And if you're in a situation where you get a little nervous, you're in a mild fight or flight, then you might get dry mouth. So it actually decreases saliva production. If we're running and fighting, we don't need to eat and digest at that moment. We're gonna focus all of our physiologic functions on getting away. The blood vessels that go to the skeletal muscles in your arms and your legs, those blood vessels dilate so that more blood can flow to your legs and more to your arms so that you can hit harder, you can run faster. Sweat glands, you know what happens if you're a little nervous, you start sweating more. 
One idea is if you're sweating and somebody's chasing you, you become slippery and it's harder to catch you, then so you can get away more easily. The lungs, the tubes in the lungs called the bronchi, they also dilate so you can get more oxygen into your lungs. And the heart beats both faster and stronger too. So these are some of the kind of things that happen with the sympathetic nervous system. You might also think about adrenaline. If you have an adrenaline rush, your sympathetic nervous system is being activated at that time. And it's giving you the energy to be able to get away. On the parasympathetic side, Opposite kind of thing, so the eye, the pupils constrict, a little less light comes in. You do have saliva production, not as much blood flow to the skeletal muscles, not sweating, and the lungs have what we call a normal level of flow, and the heart rate slows down, calms down. And then there's more activity in the belly, and we can digest food at that point. So these are some about the autonomic nervous system and what it's doing. Now, Stephen Porges is the researcher that developed the polyvagal theory, and he noticed a number of things that weren't quite consistent with this, including some things that seemed to be the parasympathetic nervous system would do opposite things. And he started thinking about not just two states, but three states. But what about when we're not in fight flight and we're not in freeze? Before 2011, which is when I first learned about the polyvagal theory, I never thought about that question. Okay, we've got fight flight, sympathetic, we've got freeze, but what's happening when I'm just walking around like most of the time I am? What's that like? Stephen Borges calls that socially engaged, the social engagement system. And in this state, we're calm, calmer anyway, but regulated and connected and able to have lots of different responses. So we have these three different states and we'll talk some about how that all works. The vagus nerve goes throughout the body, connects with all these organs, and it's called vagus because it has the same Latin root as the word vagabond, which means to be a wanderer. So this is the wandering nerve, and it goes from your nose down through your intestines. There are two branches of the vagus. So when we're in the social engagement system, we can connect. And really this new vagus, by putting a break on the sympathetic nervous system, has allowed us to come together and do things that mammals do. Excuse me. Mate, raise our young, cooperate, collaborate, communicate. Those kind of things that have survival value to us. So we can connect with each other, we can communicate with each other, we can connect with ourselves in the social engagement system. And in the social engagement system, this is where actually healing happens, physiologic healing happens when we're in a relatively calm state. It makes sense that we wouldn't use our energy to knit a broken bone or to form a scar and heal a wound while we're running away from something. When we get back to where we're safe, then we can use our energy for these things. So actually physiologic healing happen at in this state. And so it makes some sense too that if somebody's in chronic fight or flight or chronic shutdown state, that they're gonna have some chronic physical conditions too because they're not in the social engagement system. They're not able to mobilize healing during very much of their waking hours. And so when we're in the social engagement system, we can stay regulated. We have more of a chance to have control over how intense our emotions get. So one part of the polyvagal theory is that we have these three responses, safe, social engagement, threat, fight or flight, life threat, freeze, shutdown. 
Neuroception is the, the alarm in your house that sits in the top of the room like a motion detector, and it is constantly surveying for problems. Connection and co-regulation are the other two parts of this. So in terms of this idea of neuroception or the threat detector in our brain, the amygdala is this little part at the base of the brainstem that detects threats and initiates these responses. And it's acting all the time. In a way, always asking, is this safe? And then it has a goal of responding appropriately to threat. But I think its motto is better safe than sorry. So it'll respond to threats that it hasn't quite yet even determined what it is. I grew up in Houston and I was coming around the corner of the house and all of a sudden I found myself jumping in the air, looking down going, why did I jump in the air? And uh, there was a hose coiled up, but my amygdala thought it was a snake. And so I got out of the way. And if you do that a hundred times, and even if only one time it was a snake, then you're probably going to do better if you're safe rather than sorry. So sometimes our responses aren't appropriate to the threats. And we want to be able to match as much as possible. But also, it allows us then to learn, grow, and heal when we're safe, this neuroception. It's always on, our neuroception, even like when we're sleeping. And then the third part of the polyvagal theory, we've got the hierarchy of these three states. We've got neuroception, connection, and co-regulation. Really, connection and co-regulation or survival needs like food, water, shelter. So without connection, we just don't do as well. Steve Porges calls that a biological imperative. It's necessary. Connection is not optional. And another thing that's interesting, co-regulation is our ability to keep each other calm. If you study child development, kids need to be co-regulated before they learn any self-regulation skill. If you have a 10-month-old and you say, use your coping skills. That would be silly, wouldn't it? But we also have that with some kids that we work with that never got co-regulated. So they're still at that 10-month level from a brain standpoint, and they need a lot of co-regulation before they could ever use self-regulation skills. And then when they start using self-regulation skills, they can do it up to a point, but then if things get too intense, then they need help. I think I'm kidding myself when I say that. I think probably all adults need co-regulation a lot of the time, and that's much better than self-regulation. And one of the things that's probably becoming clear is that the environment that you're in, your context, your surroundings, those kinds of things can have a really big impact on you physiologically. What's happening that that's happening? Because I think that if you understand the context, you'll have a good deal of information about why that's going on, as well as what to do about it. We have a built-in need for connection, and you probably have learned a lot about attachment theory and things like that. But if we have a need for connection, but adults are dangerous, then those two things are in tension with each other. Our urge to connect with an adult who may be dangerous is actually a dangerous urge. It may be taking me somewhere that I feel like is a dangerous place to go. So if I'm a kid that's been traumatized, I may need to resist my urge to connect in order to keep myself safe so that there's this battle going on inside. If you have parents that are taking good care of you, then connection feels really good. It's pleasurable, it's meaningful, it's life-sustaining as we were seeing. But if you don't have parents that did a good job or somebody was hurting you, that kind of thing, then relationships are dangerous. And then we have to find a way to not have relationship, but how do we stay safe? Because the usual way of staying safe for relationships isn't available to us. So now we have to replace one kind of safety with some other kind of safety. 
And that then often leads to kids feeling like they need to control their environment, like Jeremy did, dominate, like I was talking about, or be submissive as well. It can lead to manipulating, even lying, stealing, those kinds of things. So you're going to want to do things to put distance between you and that adult. And so for traumatized kids, connection isn't protection. I heard this study in the early 90s, and I think it illustrates a point. And in this study, they were talking about squirrels. And so they would give a squirrel an electric shock and then flash a light. But then pretty soon, you can just flash the light, and it'll have a stress response. Heart rate will go up, blood pressure, adrenaline, cortisol, things like that. And what that allows you to do is you can then take a, another squirrel and put it in the cage with that first squirrel. You can flash a light. The second squirrel hasn't been conditioned in this way, so it's just like a flashing light. It doesn't bother at all. But when you put one other squirrel in with that conditioned squirrel, flash the light, it only has half the stress response that it had by itself. And if you put five other squirrels in that haven't been conditioned, it didn't have a stress response at all. So connection is really protective in that kind of way from the stresses of life. But in this case, connection is a protection. Actually, rejection is protection. So if you have a foster child who's been traumatized and they're rejecting you, another way of understanding that is they're trying to protect themselves. If we're thinking about deepening perspectives, this behavior doesn't actually have anything to do with you. It has to do with that urge that they're starting to develop to connect with you. And they've, at some level, made themselves a promise. I'm not going to put myself in that situation again. I'm not going to let an adult hurt me anymore. I'm going to promise myself I'm not going to get tricked by my own urge to connect. So they're really rejecting their urge to connect rather than rejecting you, but they are rejecting you too. Dan Hughes says they'll do four different things to try to reject you. One of them is to make you angry. They'll do things that get you upset. That pushes you away. Another is to make you afraid. So I've worked with kids that are standing over the bed of the parents at night, angry, afraid, inadequate, or feel like giving up. And I think sometimes kids are successful in having us give up. I work with parents whose kids have pushed them down the stairs and broken their legs. One girl who lit the stairs on fire while the family was upstairs sleeping, they were all safe, but it's hard to take somebody back in your house that has done that because you've got your own nervous system. I don't care how unique your autonomic profile is. If somebody tries to kill you by setting your stairs on fire while you're sleeping at night, you're going to feel afraid of that. But it's important to understand where that's coming from, and it's coming from a need to feel safe. So this guy, Jeremy, his nervous system made an error. He's yelling at his mother, and his nervous system thinks that his mother is dangerous. And I start to talk like that about my nervous system as if it's something separate from me, because in very real ways, it is separate from me. I didn't set out to feel this way. I end up feeling this way. I can notice I feel this way. But it's not something that's under my volitional control, at least in the beginning. But a kid can't do that. He can't control his reaction. He's not even aware that he's having that reaction, so he can't control it. But now that you guys have had this talk, you can teach him some of these things, and maybe some of these lessons will start to sink in. So again, when adults have hurt you, you learn that relationships are dangerous, and your sense of safety comes from controlling things rather than relating to people. So when the kids are trying to control you, then you can just know, oh, they're trying to feel safe. John Berlin calls that misplaced mistrust. You've heard of misplaced trust. You're trusting somebody you shouldn't. Misplaced mistrust is not trusting somebody you should. 
So the kids should trust you guys. You're good people, you're trustworthy, but they can't see that. They've misplaced their mistrust. And this is why for traumatized kids, it's not always useful to have point systems or behavioral modification systems because for kids that aren't traumatized, that works well. They're in relationship with you and they actually want to please you or be connected to you. So following that system can be helpful. But a traumatized kid may just want to defeat you. And they're usually, at least for me, they're usually pretty good at defeating me if I design that kind of a system. So I design systems more based on creating relationships than having a battle of control. So just as a bit of a summary, these kids will see relationships as dangerous, they reject love and support, they feel safe through control and manipulation, and then they settle into pervasive mistrust, and they can't control these reactions and attitudes. These are things that are coming from their nervous system and attempts to manage the things that they've been through. One of the things that Deb Dana talks about is that we create stories based on these neurologic experience to try and explain them to ourselves. And so a kid may tell you a lot of different things, why they are rejecting you. But the basic fact is they're rejecting you so that they can feel safe because connection feels dangerous to them. Now, that sounds pretty sad and scary and maybe disheartening, but there is a hopeful story here, and I think maybe even one of the most hopeful, because it's a story of opening doors that were thought to have been closed forever. So Jeremy's neuropsychological testing from when he was five said he's likely to be in an institution for all of his childhood and adolescence. But he's almost 18 and he's making A's in schools and he has a few friends and he might be one of the best functioning members of his family now after 10 years of therapy. So you can go from a place where somebody's saying you're going to have to be locked up for the next 10 years to really making changes if you're working on these kinds of things. How do I help a kid learn to trust again when relationships are dangerous? How do I help them manage their, their nervous system? It doesn't always feel hopeful, and I get that. I want to tell you that for the moments when it doesn't feel very hopeful that I think that anything that you do can make an impact, and you might not know what that impact looks like until years later. Children need love, especially when they don't deserve it. Connecting beyond his trauma and beyond his sympathetic activation. Really going beyond that first response that somebody gives us, that attempt to push us away, to reject our love and our care, which is really important to us. But if we keep going a little bit farther, it's like we're digging a mine with the Comstock load. This guy was digging for silver or something like that and gave up three feet before the next person that started digging found this huge silver load that was bigger than any silver mine that had ever been discovered. And this is the same kind of thing. If we just go a little bit farther, you can often find the heart of the child. And it's not like she doesn't set limits because she says, you can't do this. You can't throw things at me. You can't hit me. But most of what she's focused on is the relationship and understanding what he's going through and waiting for that opening to find some clue about what's going on. And I think the most important thing is that she's staying in the social engagement system. So she's not getting triggered. But hey, we all get triggered, so I'm not saying you gotta be perfect and never get triggered. But she's staying regulated, she's staying in social engagement. And her nonverbals are communicating safety to the boy. She's saying, I'm interested in you, I wanna know what's going on with you. I want to find out about you, what's happening. And the nonverbals are more important than the verbals. There's several awkward sentences that she says or that he says, 
But it's not about the words at all. It's that tone of voice that she has, her interest, and the space that she's creating for him to be able to talk. And I know that you guys have had those moments too, and I want to validate that this is what I think is happening when you have those moments. So that it was really helpful for me to think about it that way because sometimes things would work and sometimes they wouldn't work. And I didn't exactly know what made things work when they did or what made things not work when they didn't work. But after learning some about polyvagal theory and hearing this and thinking about it, it's, oh yeah, this is what's happening. The boy's nervous system's made a critical error and it thinks his mother is dangerous. It's not really Jeremy that's thinking that, it's his autonomic nervous system. It's his response. And he can't control his reaction because he's not aware of it, as we said before. His autonomic nervous system needs to know that he's safe. And his mother's helping his autonomic nervous system know that it's safe. She's become an amygdala whisperer. She can communicate in the language of the amygdala to his nervous system that says, I'm here for you. I want to learn what's going on with you. And I'm going to stay safe. I'm going to stay in control of myself so that I can help you get back in control of yourself. So really her state that she's in is a signal to his autonomic nervous system that I'm in a social engaged state and you can be too, and it can be safe. And I love this quote from Claire Wilson. She says, the state our body is in sends a message to the children around us. Bodies communicate. I love that. Bodies communicate. The children subconsciously know we're not okay and things are not okay. And therefore, potentially, if we're not okay, then they're not okay. And their survival, make myself safe behaviors begin. So you can think of all of the yelling and screaming that he's doing and pounding and throwing and hitting as a make myself safe behavior. So really the bodies are communicating. One of the things I learned from Dan Hughes is he has the idea that whoever stays in their state longest brings the other person to that state. So if I stay in my social engaged state longest, then whoever I'm around will come because nervous systems resonate with each other. And so one of the things that Steve Porges says is that an animated facial expression is a signal of safety for our amygdalas. So if you wanna be an amygdala whisperer, if you have an, a more animated facial expression, that will be helpful. And that's how these states get transmitted to each other. And I think that this is probably how humans communicate safety or danger of an environment by cueing on each other's faces. So I could communicate to you much faster if I made a facial expression and pointed to the back of the room than if I had to say, oh, there's somebody that just walked in the back of the room. They look a little dangerous. My gosh, I don't know if they're okay or not. But if I just go like that for one second, you'll get that. That'll communicate to you. And so animated facial expressions are a cue of safety. But also animated tone of voice is a cue of safety as well. So a flattened tone of voice or flattened prosody, the musicality goes out of it. It's all one tone that communicates danger. So it'd be like when my dad would get mad at me when I was a kid. His face would go flat and he would go, come here, young man. I need to talk to you now. I could tell from the, if I just heard, da 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 like that, I would know, oh, I'm in trouble. I didn't even need the words, or just a flash of his face. So when we're talking to the kids, and you can hear it in that audio from the mom, her voice stays animated. And then you probably all learned about nonverbal communication and our postures and things like that, that communicate safety as well. So here's something else that's interesting is acceptance of experience communicates safety and evaluation communicates danger. But if we accept experience, then that communicates you're in a safe space. So if you think about it, if you have a friend that 
you can talk to them about anything and you know that they're going to accept your experience of what that was, you're going to want to talk to them more because you'll feel safe with them. One thing to point out about acceptance is acceptance of experience is different than acceptance of behavior. So whatever Jeremy was experiencing, his mother was accepting of that. But when he got the cigarettes out of her purse or he was throwing something at her, she didn't accept every behavior. Storytelling is also a signal of safety for us. So if you want to get a point across to a kid, you tell them a story, then a story comes in a different way than a lecture. You give a kid a lecture, then they'll start to have that face of tuning you out and they'll lose all the words that you're saying. And so here's something important to know is that we need to over-communicate safety because people, especially those who have experienced trauma, neurocept danger more easily than they neurocept safety. If a kid is in chronic states of freeze and shutdown and you're wanting to help them get into social engagement, is that the pathway from freeze shutdown to social engagement leads through fight or flight. And so the kid may need to be in fight or flight some for a few minutes or even for a longer period of time in order to get to social engagement. It doesn't look like you can just easily go from chronic freeze shutdown right to social engagement. And so if a kid's in my residential facility and they're in freeze or shutdown, they occasionally have big blowups, but most of the time they're just cooperative or compliant. And now they start to be irritable all the time, start to have more frequent upsets then their parents may say they're regressing and have to explain, no, I think actually we're going in the right direction here because they're more connected. They're not so dissociated from what's happening. And they're also letting me help them calm down when they're in fight or flight. Because in freeze shutdown, they're gonna just be pushing me away. So at a certain point in the treatment, it may be that they're going into fight or flight, but now they can hear me when they're in fight or flight in a way that they couldn't before. And then they'll have more moments of social engagement as they go along. So really there's this trust building phase where we're trying to build rapport, we're understanding what the person is going through, we're using playfulness, acceptance, curiosity, and empathy, we're sending signals with our facial expression and our tone of voice, our body posture, and then all of a sudden they get to that threshold of mistrust and then trust really increases and then we can pivot at that point from trust building to collaborating. And so now that's the point when we can start doing encouraging or problem solving or things like that. Now we have a sense we're on the same team, on the same side, we're part of the same family, tribe, group, plan. And there's really trust beyond doubt. Like it's relaxed so now I'm not thinking about do I trust the person or not. So then if we understand the neurobiology of our autonomic nervous system, then we know that it's important to create a culture of psychological safety. The sense that no matter what you say, you're not going to be embarrassed or humiliated or retaliated or that kind of thing. Then we can think about how do we think about our nervous system after we learn all of these kinds of things. So when we don't understand how our autonomic nervous system is working, we feel we are these different states. So we could feel like, I'm an angry person. You've probably heard people say that. Or I don't do well with conflict. Or I get shut down easily. But we're now identifying with our nervous system. And if we don't identify with it, if we think of it as separate from us, then we can think in a different way. So we can ask questions like, what does my nervous system tell me right now? What's its message? What does it need? What's going on? And it gives you a clue of what your environment is, but also it might give you a clue about some of your needs. So even if your nervous system is reacting in a way you think is inappropriate, there probably is, I think, some appropriate need that's in there somewhere. 
So we can ask, what important thing is threatened? If I'm defensive, there's something that's important that's being threatened. And what do I need to do to address that? I was talking to a friend on Zoom one day and her mother accidentally closed the door and I think caught the cat's tail in the door for a minute. And my friend looked a little upset and I was like, what do you think your nervous system needs right now? And she said, I think I need to pick up my cat and see if he's okay. I'm like, great, go ahead and pick up your cat. She's holding Sebastian. And she felt so much better. She went back into the social engagement state within 30 seconds, something like that. But she was trying to pretend, I don't need to do something. Why am I upset? That kind of thing. But as soon as she paid attention to her nervous system, she actually knew what to do and got back on track just instantly. Deb Dana says, when we understand the autonomic nervous system, then we can separate our sense of self from it. We can relate to our autonomic nervous system rather than from it. She calls that neural navigation. And she says, the autonomic nervous system tells us not what we are or who we are, but how we are. So that tells me how I'm doing right now if I pay attention to it. It's a big gift. I think about the work that you guys are doing as foster parents can be a spiritual path. And here would be a sentence about it from a compassionate, self-regulated, open-hearted, and engaged space, the social engagement system, that you approach others' experiences of suffering with playfulness, acceptance, curiosity, and empathy, and use skillful means to create safety, co-regulate emotion, make sense of experience, transform trauma, build enduring bonds of attachment. So I want to end with a letter that a kid wrote to the team when I read this, I want you to think of it as the kids that you work with, that this is what they're telling you. Maybe they weren't able to tell you, but, but think of it as this is a message from the kids that you've worked with. So she says, dear all my team, but dear you, two years ago I was lost, broken, and bruised. I didn't know much except pain, but then I went to you guys, and despite all my crap, you changed me, you fixed me. I thank you for all your unconditional love and support. Here's a song I dedicated a while back to all the staff that helped me. So you deserve gratitude and you deserve recognition and appreciation. I'm very grateful to be in this work with you together. We're doing great work. This work is noble and it's hard sometimes, but we're in it together. And as long as we stick together, we'll make it through. Thank you very much. This has been Fostering Conversations with Utah Foster Care. Thank you for joining us. For more information, go to utahfostercare.org. We'll see you next time.